Hey everybody, um, those who've listened before, welcome back, and those who are just listening now, welcome. Uh, this is another podcast episode of Off the Top, and today we are going to touch on a topic that um, could be near and dear to uh, many of you guys' hearts, or uh, maybe somebody you, you know is quite into these things. We're talking about video games. Yeah, so video games are something that we find very essential in this household, whether it be rocking out to Guitar Hero, which I'm going to say Guitar Hero 2 and 3 are by far the best, or playing Super Smash Bros. or Mario Kart. It's just kind of a great stress reliever over time, and I think it's something that's been instilled in us as, since you know young children. Yeah, um, and I feel like uh, when it comes, definitely specifically when it comes to uh, children in video games, there's kind of a tumultuous uh, uh, dichotomy of one side saying that um, that some of these games are a little too gory or adult for children to play. And another side is saying um, that these games are an appropriate environment for, for children to experience and go through the process of problem solving or uh, advanced, um, advanced problem solving, basically. Yeah, I agree. Especially if you, we, I think back to when I was little or like there wasn't really online gaming at that time. So parents were very much concerned with the details or the content of the game. So you had like Grand Theft Autos that were, you know, mainline headline for Wall Street Journal on what they were providing and, you know, the content, or you had all these rated M games that, um, as today you see a lot of parents like, Oh, I just got my son call of duty for his birthday or whatever. But like, as for me as a child, it was like, Hey mom, I want uh, this game. It's rated M. Like, can you go get it? Nah, you're not old enough. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I feel like, uh, the more that video games are around and the more that culturally they've been more accepted and adopted to, uh, society in a whole and not, I mean, more demographics than just children play video games. Now it's adults, and now it's, like, you know, uh, parents of the children that play video games, and like, husbands, wives. Like, everybody uh, collectively has kind of espoused um, video games as an idea and as an activity that's socially acceptable. Yeah, I think, too, video games, touching that point, has um, grown towards where it's not just on a console like a PlayStation or an Xbox or a PC. It's now like you have Candy Crush, which is huge on your phone or like Facebook where, you know, your grandparents could be playing Candy Crush or Scrabble or some sort of game that's on their phone, technically a video game where they're enticed by what that game has to offer or what, you know, is fun to them at the time. And that could relate to the, you say your grandparents, like, Pong was huge. And now if I look at Pong from like this standpoint, I'm like, that game, you know, it's relatively simple. But I mean, I could see how it captures the moment. I can play it every now and again. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things too. It's culturally like um, when uh, people were, when video games just started, it was on DOS Windows machines or even simpler. Um, and you'd have to like, you know, put in your video game memory disc and like put in your operating system memory disk and like do that like that. And uh, we've definitely gone past that somewhat archaic stage. Um, but 
every single time that something new happens in video games, it's, it's almost revolutionizing in the fact that uh, graphics have always got improved or processing power has always improved and the abilities of these gaming consoles, PCs, and even on your phone. Like right now on my phone, I was telling a coworker the other day, he was talking about old, this old Street Fighter 2 game. And I was telling him, yeah, I used to play it on my phone like when I was bored. And he didn't understand the concept of this game that he played on a console. I used to play it on my phone. Yeah. Or I can now. Yeah, that's just kind of crazy. And I think it falls back into like a another example of that is I think most people in our kind of age group, you know, 20 plus, like when I first started playing video games, like I couldn't go on Google and find cheats. Like you had to get a physical cheat book. And like, I feel like even for maybe your coworker or a little bit older generation, like there wasn't a cheat book. It was like, hey, dude go down the street and tell your friend like hey dude i pressed up up down down left left triangle twice and i got this character and i think what you're speaking on like the growth of technology i think it's moore's law where you know is it computer power doubles every 18th month or chip software yeah it's it's like a um basically a broad general topic that says like computing power or the efficiency of creating that computing power doubles every almost year and um, it's not as linear as that, so Moore's Law has kind of been disproven, but it's definitely something that's more exponential in the fact that um, it's not going to be a very static 100% growth every year. It'll be a, you know, it'll slowly start ramping up or, you know, it's not as uh, predictable as that. But yeah, I mean, there's been no slowdown of technology. I mean, you can even look at our the consoles or the our phones specifically and what they can do, but... I was listening to one of a, I have a favorite um, tech guy that I watch on YouTube. His name's Marquez Brownlee, uh, MKBHD. And uh, somebody asked him and they said, what is your favorite computer? And he said, well, my favorite computer is my phone. And I mean, that just kind of is like, is a, like puts upon how fast things are growing and we have these things in our pockets. Yeah. I think it's very noticeable in, video game consoles where for a while you had like think about going from playstation 2 or just the regular xbox and not really having the traditional online play and you had like LAN parties so like local networks or your friends coming over to play multiplayer to very soon after that you had like the xbox 360 or the ps3 or that revolutionized to put players online and then you had like the xbox 360 pro or whatever may have came out like I think in technology or console-based, video game-based, you're seeing, like, that things are kind of improving pretty quick. So, like, you're going, you know, Xbox 360 to Xbox One might not have been, like, in a year, but within two years you had brought something else that was, you know, pretty much playing in 4K or the ability to play in 4K, like the new Xbox One uh, Scorpio project or something like that. It's supposed to be able to either play in 4K or watch movies in 4K or something like that, but, like sitting in this room looking at my our PlayStation 2 in here, it's like 10 years ago, I would have thought that was never possible, you know? Yeah, and I don't think it was ever something that we ever considered either. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the, uh, I mean, it's kind of the way I think about it, it's like right now sitting where we're sitting, we don't know what we don't know not to know type thing. So 
when we were, and granted, I mean, different age, and so when we were children, we weren't thinking about 4K, but if you think about it, there's things that in five years that will be a possibility or a thing that we have no idea would even be, like, exists in the first place. So, I mean, just like like a virtual reality, I feel like that's just such a foreign, I mean, it's kind of like a, I don't want to use the word pervasive, but it's one of those things that kind of all of a sudden is infused in everything. And I feel like it was somewhat of an abrupt thing in the fact that all of a sudden this thing that nobody's using or has ever used before, it's now at your fingertips that you can kind of dispose and apply of as you'd like. Yeah. And I see like, well, virtually it's one of those things like, yeah, you don't really think you need but someone made it and you kind of companies are like, you know, this might be the next thing or, you know, video game industries are using like the Oculus Rift or things like that. That's bringing people into like, you know, playing, you know, Halo on my couch is cool, but maybe eventually where I put on this headset and I'm able to kind of walk around or move around or turn my body, get a more encompassed feel to the game. People might want to play. And I mean, it's turned out true. Like I've seen people playing horror games on, the VR, which seems like a terrifying thing. Like if you're easily scared and you're turning around and something's screaming at you and you're fully immersed in the game, like, I mean, it's probably pretty funny to watch someone like jump back and fall onto the ground. But at the same time, it's like, it gives you that realistic feel. If you're that person that is watching that, like, wow, this is actually scary. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just the human nature of wanting to, uh, we adjust to things very, very well. So the second we adjust to, let's say, something being so visually appealing as far as graphics go, it's like, all right, so what's the next thing? And then eventually you become immersed in what you're doing. But another topic that talks about kind of how things in video games become more real is like how we have this thing now of people actually get together and... um, coalesce into competitions with video games now Mm -hmm. so it's not just a thing that you do recreationally anymore there's there's an arena of competition yeah i think that yeah that competition stems from like i remember the first time i played uh xbox live i was playing halo at a friend's house and you know we're playing and we're doing all right and like you get these messages if you if you played Xbox Live. You get these messages like, "Hey, come join our team! Like, we're looking for a squad of this to, you know, play on weekends and rule the world, basically." And that first, like, you your initial instinct is like, "That's funny! Like, I'm 300 miles away from you, or however long the distance is, but you want to play on this team on Saturdays to, you know, beat other random groups or other teams." And over time, that just kind of, yeah, progressed and progressed and progressed. And then it kind of turned into this thing where someone's like, you know, this is a competitive nature. Like, these kids are competitive. Like, why don't we do something about it? And boom, you have esports. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talking about your Halo experience yeah. uh, reminded me back when I was a, or like a lot younger. Um, I created, me and my little brother created a clan on that's right call of duty modern warfare and uh the name of the clan was ltd and it was living the dream and it was so just kind of like flippantly put together it was just an idea that me and him had and then we got a few people from like all over in different places and uh 
it was just funny to like different people from different backgrounds conglomerating to become this team and regardless if you know them or not like or like if you personally know them or not you're working together in a common goal but to bring that whole all thing together is like team sports doesn't just have to be a physical thing anymore with esports and i mean there's it's becoming a very very big industry and uh almost kind of eclipsing uh natural normal sports that we think about commonly yeah and it's kind of one of those things when you i think about like when i was um you know when we were doing this and parents would be like who are you playing with like i i don't know like they're like well, why are you playing with them? Like, that's just how it works out. And it's like, for some people at first, it's hard to like grasp your head around. Like you can play with someone who's, you know, located in Vermont, or if you're playing on a PC, you could be playing League of Legends with someone from, you know, Europe or um, Russia or something like that when you get to that competitive nature. And it's one of those things that, you know, like the NBA, NFL, MLB, like, you have foreign players come into the league, but it's not as prominent as like, if you look at the esports community, it's like very diverse with cultures uh, all around the world that have, are setting up these teams to compete at the greatest stage, improve their, you know, esports prowess or, you know, what they have to offer besides the traditional sport. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I, I was talking to, somebody at my gym that I uh, randomly crossed paths with and she was a professional gamer. And so she kind of enlightened me on the fact that there's just so many different backgrounds and so many different angles that you can get involved with the uh, esports with that it's almost to the point of like your audience is global. And so when you're marketing yourself or you're out there, you, all eyes are on you and it's not just a specific demographic or anything. She was telling me that, uh, um, and in sometimes a good way and a bad way. Uh, so, I mean, you could bring all these different people together and, uh, she was saying that she was having a hard time getting on to a, a team that she really wanted to, that felt that she felt was competitive because, uh, her being a woman, sometimes uh, she'd get the, like, somebody would tell her, like, oh, I don't think this would be a good idea because of the sexual tension that comes to, comes along with working with teammates of different genders, cultures, or whatever. And so, like, she was telling me that was kind of somewhat of an obstacle to kind of overcome. But with that being said, I mean, there's so many different, like, brackets and leagues. Like, there's a all-female team. There's a co-gender team there's a all guy team there's you know age brackets sometimes as far as uh like your competition goes as well yeah and i think too what is amazing about um kind of the growth of esports um is i've seen i saw a stat um, on the economist that was saying that the gender split right now is like 52 percent male 48 percent female where in terms of like those are, yeah, you know, the numbers that they found, but say I'm playing online in my room and I'm playing a certain character. Like I have no clue that the person I'm playing is, you know, a female or the person I'm playing is male or they're from so-and-so It's just kind of like a neutral playing field. Like you see their character and you want them to do these actions. You communicate that however it may be. 
And maybe you're typing instead of like a voice chat or a discord that you have no clue. And I think that's kind of the cool thing when you bring down not to necessarily the competitive stage, but to just kind of the casual gamer stage is anyone can play and you're not going to get this kind of like bias as if you go and try to play like a pickup basketball game or like a football game. Sometimes you get this bias between like you don't want to play, like mix up the groups or you like don't feel, I don't know, comfortable in that situation where you're playing at like a high level. Say you're playing as a college level basketball at a park and then, you know, a bunch of 10 year olds come over and want to play like, I'm not like, I'll be nice to them maybe, but at the same time, like sometimes you're not about that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I think that goes to illustrate the fact that um, competition through uh, kind of an electronic human device or human interface is kind of somewhat of an equalizer, almost like academia. Like it doesn't matter wh- who you are or where you come from. It's what matters is is you concocting this strategy or idea and implementing it or executing it to the best of your ability. And so those who have the better ideas and execute them better are going to be better, but that's about it. It's all yeah. down to your ideas. Yeah, I agree. So touching on esports, we'll take it to the root real quick. What is the first game you remember playing? Me? Yeah. Um... That's a tough question. Maybe like Spyro the Dragon. Not really much of a eSport game, yeah, a single but, player, but... But like when you think, like I think like the first game I played, I remember playing as like a Super Smash Bros type. Mm. And I don't know, it wasn't mine. It was like, I think my babysitters at the time. But I remember playing a little bit like, oh, this is cool. And then you see 20 years down the line or 15 years down the line that like, the Smash community is huge. Like, I know you play Smash quite often, and there's, you know, different brackets, but it's crazy seeing a game from that timeline and one of the first games I played turning into this really, really competitive um, esports environment where you'd think, like, everyone's played Smash Bros. And everyone knows sometimes it's rage-inducing. It's almost like Mario Kart. But, like, you can see there's a competitive nature there, and I think it's an awesome thing to see you know, that casual competitive nature put onto a stage where you can win money for, you know, being good at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, kind of like having a closer feel to the Smash community in specific, but this is kind of generalized and can be applied to different things. There is a very, very strong community. And with that community and the esports itself, I mean, the, it becomes a thing of like, you can get notoriety and you can also kind of monetarily come up as they say when it comes to it uh like for instance um i was doing a little bit of research and uh a really uh kind of famous uh smash bros player in the community his name is hungry box and for those of you who know him uh he had so i was looking at his career earnings and it was kind of interesting to see that he made about like just off the top, he made almost like I think $450,000 in his career. But at the same time, like you think that's a huge number. Um, When I further looked into it, that was from the age of 14 to 24. So 10 years he's making, he's so basically call it a $45,000 job that he's doing. And granted, like, 
he isn't like there's a lot of sweat equity in there because you got to think like the skills that take it takes to win number ones and some things and to be nationally ranked and so good like there's a lot of hours that you put in there so it I mean just kind of like athletes like you don't it takes a long time to be an overnight success as they say and that's the type of thing I mean it takes a little bit of like grit and a goal to achieve to kind of be at that level. And I feel like some people, I mean, if you have some sort of working knowledge on the video game industry, it seems like that people are getting paid like just insane amounts of money. And granted, sometimes they are like in some Dota 2 uh, tournaments, people like the purse will be about like, I think two and a half million coming from different sources. Um, but I mean, that's split up uh, with your four other teammates and your coach sometimes, depending on if you have a coach or not. And then it also is split up with like, you got to think like you didn't just show up to that tournament and started just like yeah. snapping necks. You, yeah. you spent probably at least 3000 hours doing something. Right. I think one thing I want to touch on from that story real quick is, um, what did you say the guy's name was? Hungry Box. So I think that's the awesome thing about the gaming community is that you can pick relatively any username you want. Like you, when you're playing, you don't have to go out there and like go by your name. You don't have to go there and be LeBron James, right? You can go out there and be like Pudding Top or like Big Daddy Candy Cane or something like that. Yeah. And you know, as soon as if that's what you want to be, that's what you want to be. And then that's who you become is like hungry box is now hungry box. Like obviously he has a real name unless he legally changed that, mm. but like, that's what he's known. And I think that's awesome that it shows like the creativity of, you know, being someone that, you know, you want to be or making that your name instead of having to go by your, your given name, the government name. Um, and also some of the things I was talking, I saw was like, you're talking about Dota and I saw that, um, yeah, some of their smaller tournaments have like two to three million, but I saw that the Invitational, which is their largest tournament, um, Dota basically is like a sh tactical strategic game to conquer the map or take down a certain base. And they, the Dota Invitational prize pool was $20 million for a, like, people are going to be like, wow, $20 million for a video game. But it's like, that was all crowdsourced or GoFundMe, basically, what you want to say. So the whole community donated, basically got or raised this money to get $20 million for the best players to, you know, compete for. And then they put that tournament in <clears throat> the old Seattle Supersonics Arena um, and packed it out. So now you're so now if you don't have an idea of how big esports is, esports packed out a NBA, an old NBA stadium. And then in which the championship of that tournament had 36 million unique users watching it. So in total, if you want like a comparison, the 2015 NBA Finals, um, one of the games peaked at, I believe it was 28 million unique view viewers. So that's one game, obviously not the whole series, but the championship series of Dota had yeah 36 million. So that's 8 million more than you know, a household 
sport such as the NBA final or the NBA and then the NBA finals, which if you didn't have an idea, like I was saying, of esports before, you should be firmly aware of where it's going and the capability of a global audience. Yeah, and I think those numbers are somewhat telling on uh, what kind of industry this is. I mean, it's an industry that uh, is globally adopted and has uh, has some very big potential to grow in and uh, to kind of uh, add to what you were saying, um, I was doing some research and comparing Olympic athletes to these eSport athletes. And what I found was, is really interesting. Uh, the Olympic athletes, uh, usually what happens when you are an Olympian and you're competing in the Olympic events, you have some sort of incentive money. So for instance, if you get gold, usually I think this is the U.S.'s uh, monetary structure. If you get gold, you get 25000 and somewhat of a bonus and it decreases from there. But at the same time, a lot of these Olympic athletes, they also, like, I think about 150 of them opened up and started their own GoFundMe accounts to cover the expenses of going to the Olympics and everything like that. And so it's kind of this really, really interesting, like, comparison when you look at them and then compared to the competitive gamers about your average competitive gamer will probably make around 50 to 75k and that's not including winning compensations if you add those on that's probably around 25 27k as well so they can make upwards to really close to like six figures or about 75ish k and so to see the the like absolute dichotomy of these two sports one is obviously a staple and I mean, Olympics have been going on. I mean, it's perennial. And then this esports thing that has been emerging has created so much noise. And I think you can kind of see that through the numbers we've been putting out there. I also, touching on that, I saw there's a large push to get esports into the 2024 Olympics, which may be in Tokyo. I'm not, don't remember the location, but there's a large push to get esports or a certain game of esports into the Olympics. And one of the things kind of off that I want to touch on is like esports, you don't have to be necessarily born at 6'9", 280 and be the LeBron James or, you know, the 6'6", 210 Kobe or Jordan, but it still takes, you know, an acquired skill set. At the same time, I think that's what makes it so inviting to a global audience is a lot of the players, like some of them have their fr a freak skill set and muscle response. Um, but a lot of people, gaming is one of the things just like basketball. Like if you put in time, you're going to have an opportunity um, to, you know, figure out the best tactics or strategies or be a thinker in some of these games to come up and become, you know, a player or a strategist for a, a team. And I think that kind of you see some of that on um, a platform called Twitch where Twitch is like a service where you live stream games. And sometimes you'll look at like League of Legends, which is often one of the most viewed games on there. You'll see a, a huge variety of people playing. And some of these players aren't necessarily the best competitively, but they're playing very unique strategies and seeing how those work out. And you'll see people on Twitch studying these strategies. And maybe you weren't the greatest before, but you saw one of the best players you know, taking a different route and you take that into mind too. So it's 
very similar to sports where you just got to study the aspects and you're going to become, you have the potential to become very successful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you like touched on something really important. Um, kind of similar to what I was saying before. I mean, it's only limited to your ideas mm-hmm. and I feel like something like Twitch, uh, being kind of like a viewing service for, uh, gamers, uh, has kind of opened up this somewhat of a, like amalgam of ideas. And, uh, sometimes all those ideas together can kind of become a welter, or, uh, something that's like hard to interpret because I mean so many different ideas from so many different places but at the end of the day I think it's uh, something that's absolutely beneficial to have such a uh, establishment or base that can kind of be uh, a very entrepreneurial output these guys for instance some of these guys have extraordinarily like large followings and um with that, they are creating their own brand and also marketing their own brand and also kind of solidifying whatever they're playing or doing into a more real and established realm. Yeah, kind of creating a connection. Um, here's some more stats if you aren't familiar with Twitch, because like we're saying, esports is a new industry. It's just kind of a disruptor. You know, three years ago, it wasn't nearly as big as it is now, but now it's huge. And companies like Amazon see that. So Amazon purchased Twitch for $970 million. Um, So obviously spending a billion dollars is no on a whim or on a will. Like there's some serious research in there showing that a lot of the our generation are the cord cutters who aren't watching cable TV but are streaming, you know, Netflix or Hulu um, are also on Twitch, and they see that by users are on average watching, you know, 20 hours per week of Twitch, or there's 100 million plus monthly users um, based on their statistics for these streamers who are creating these large fan bases and brands where some of these guys have 35,000 concurrent users six days of the week, um, just showing that esports in general is growing and people are kind of finding that connection between video games and the streamer at all being live. Like you can't watch an NBA game and feel too connected with the players, but you can watch a live stream of video game where there's a chat involved and the streamer is interacting with the chat or answering questions or giving their insights to the game. And I think that's, what's bringing a huge connection to global audiences is that, connection or a community within that streamers, you know, live stream or their chat. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that is, uh, something that is really important in someone like you could kind of stumble upon that. And the fact that I think it's about being very relatable and you, you kind of stated it with, I mean, less than 1% of the population I'm sure looks like LeBron James and is built like him. And, when you see somebody who's very normal looking and you can kind of uh, say like, oh, okay, that could definitely be me playing a video game and like having a personality and stuff. I mean, being relatable is very, very important to the adoption of this thing. And the fact that when you're relatable, somebody basically says that there are traits in you that they see in themselves. So you're mm-hmm. representing somewhat of them in the same aspect. Yeah. The thing I like, I watch Twitch. Like I don't, in our household, we don't have cable. We stream, you know, 
Netflix, Hulu, like I said, but like when I watch Twitch, sometimes I put it on the background while I'm doing homework or sometimes I'll just watch it for the new game that's come out. And you'll see like a, you can donate to these people as they are streaming. So people donate to so that make sure the streamer reads their comment or whatever it may be. But you'll see a lot of com like tips or just things in the chat about people going through a really hard time and falling into, you know, gaming and being relatable with, you know, maybe the streamer brings up their mood and notices it and says, hey, man, I hope everything's okay. And in turn, like, the other side of that is sometimes you'll see people that are so happy with the content that's being provided. It's like, I've seen multiple live donations to people playing video games of like 1500 to $2,000, which to me, I don't have the budget to do that. And, but like for some people that have the budget and, you know, really found the joy, maybe they're going through like a big medical issue or, you know, relationship product or problems or whatever it may be to have that connection to donate to someone. Um, I think shows the power of what, you know, video game platforms have to do. And I think that's what Amazon kind of sees when they're investing or buying it for almost a billion dollars. Yeah. And for those of you who somewhat have a counter opposite view of kind of what we were painting here and saying video games are kind of uh, make people dull and stifles uh, creativity and whatnot. Um, I kind of want to switch gears and talk about uh, the adoption rate that uh, video games has in the like universities and stuff. So also with esports being a professional like realm, there are also like college and publicly funded universities that are like have esports games that they give scholarships to. And just to like name off a few in the U.S., uh, University of uh, California Irvine has one. UCI has a, a League of Legends esports team. Um, so does Robert Morris. And Robert Morris is a private non, uh, non-profit school, but they were the very first ones to ever uh, create an esports teams to give scholarships to. Uh, another one is University of Pikeville, uh, another private liberal arts school in Kentucky. I mean, it's in like for the last one that I looked up, it was a Columbia college, which isn't Columbia university, but I mean, it just shows that it's not only getting recognized by the people in the industry. It's also getting recognized on the outside. I mean, it, I'm sure that these universities thought about this hard and long about, should we have adopt this into our, uh, like, school and have it represent us and have this be a sport that we put our name on and so it just shows that this is growing into something that um it's not just uh growing by the proponents of which are in mm-hmm. and i think kind of bring it back to what you're talking on earlier is that some of these games aren't just like pressing A to jump or B to shoot or whatever it may be. Like there's strategy, there's communication, you know, you're creating a teamwork or camaraderie. Um, There's outside research. There's a lot of different aspects to becoming a successful, you know, team in the esports world. And as like parents are always like, oh, I want you to, you know, go play this to make friends or do this to learn about, you know, goals and objectives. And some of these esports have that to offer. And now that you see is like, if I was a parent, I see like, 
hey, my kid's not the most athletic. Um, they're not interested in sports. They aren't interested in music, but they really like, you know, these games. And I see that these universities are offering potential, you know, potential scholarships or helping with some sort of the tuition that it's like, why not? You know, hey, you like playing games. Maybe you should take a little bit more seriously and you could, you know, get some school paid for where I know you like games. So if you aren't thinking about going to college, but what if you can go to college and play this game at the same time and, you know, get help or get some part of your college paid for is a phenomenal thing. And it gives another outlet for, you know, younger kids to, um, think of ways to express themselves, I guess. Yeah. And being somebody, so I'll, I'll be very, I feel like I want to be, uh, objective here, being somebody who has been involved in a, a college sport, um, I will say that it's it's definitely not for everybody, and it's not like these kids are just kind of like hanging around and, you know, playing video games and eating snacks and stuff. There's, I mean, it's a very, anything that, like any college sport, and I'll be willing to say this, is going to be something that's serious, and you need to hone your craft, and there's hard work involved, so... It's definitely not for everyone, but I think you would be, or I would be remiss in allowing people to maybe take away that it's not something that's very hard to do or something that's very hard to get in. You have to be extraordinarily gifted and even precocious to uh, become in, like, you know, get recruited for these things or not. So uh, I feel like it's these kids that are going into these programs have extraordinarily extraordinary skill and like you said that's with kind of the uh, growing of you know problem solving and uh, teamwork and advanced strategic planning that these kids have uh, perfected these skills and that allows them to like get scholarship for the video game they're playing just like I feel like it's just like a lot of things where very, a lot of people want to do it, and there's a lot of competition. If you were to talk about modeling, professional like basketball, professional soccer, anything like that, there's so many people that want to get in the game that you got to really look at it very, very hard if you want to say, yeah, I want to get into this field. Granted, there's not a lot of like physical requirements to do so. I mean, you probably need all fingers on your hands, yeah, uh, if that to to get in, but I mean the requirement there is that you need to be very very sharp and be very very nuanced in how you do things. Yeah, and kind of one of the last things I want to touch on is going from so I guess say traditional sports. You say you're gifted enough to play in college, and then you're gifted enough to play in the professional league, whatever it may be. Now in the esports community, teams such as the Heat. 76ers like PSG for soccer, Manchester, um, some various professional sports teams are purchasing and acquiring esports teams under their brand and, you know, allowing them to be part of the Heat brand or the 76ers and like joining the newly found like NBA 2K League or the FIFA League, Overwatch, um, showing that there's some serious research that's being done that esports are really on the rise and these established traditional um, professional sports or physical sports um, note, take notice of it and see, okay, this is a real thing. Like we can profit off of it just like we profit off physical sports and that it's going to be here for a while. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Did uh, was there any specific team that did uh, investing, or were those the ones that you mentioned? Um, those were just a few off the top that I saw, like the Heat, 76ers. Uh, Mark Cuban has a team. Rick Fox used to play for the Lakers. Uh, Magic Johnson has invested in a team. And Shaq have invested in a wow. team. Um, and I think that some of that platform has helped you know, teams purchase esports teams. And I think even on CBS, during certain seasons, they've now put a game called CSGO or Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is like a first-person shooter onto mainstream cable television um, where people can watch it on CBS or live stream it. And to have a, a video game competition, you know, professional competition on TV is something that is new and it kind of shows to where esports can go in the future. And it'll be interesting to see how it develops and where it moves on to. Yeah. So uh, to wrap up all of these ideas, um, I'm going to give you the first go ahead. What does video games for you represent in today's culture? I think uh, for me, video games are a way of, you know, getting out, getting out of the normal society. There's a lot of negatives that can go on in between like your social life or school or work. Like you can come home, put on Guitar Hero and just have a good time, get shredding on the mediums in a sweet 400 note streak. Or you could get on and play Super Smash or you could get on and watch, you know, the streamer have a great time and mess around and like bring some positivity back into your life. And I think that games are something that over time people thought were just kind of a waste of time, but I think they can be a good use of time to find that positivity or, you know, work on building towards a goal or objective or thinking a different way and just kind of getting out of the norm, I guess I'd say. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And if I can kind of distill that into something even more simple, I think that uh, video games with any sort of technology that is uh, came into came to light through the time of advancements in technology, um, I think it's one that extraordinarily is crucial to benefiting human daily life and the fact that people are more connected with these people. Like if you found a relationship with a streamer or um, you found a video game that you liked that you had a group that played with you, I, I just feel like video games, although I mean there are some bad points like video game addiction and things that we didn't really touch on, overall I think it's a net benefit to humanity in the fact that it makes our lives it, it augments our lives in some sort of way. Yeah, I agree. Like with everything, there's like we talked about all the pros. There's obviously cons, but everything's that way. And I think it's easy, it's nice to see the pros at first before creating an idea based off just the cons. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, uh, with that being it, I want to thank everybody who's listened this far and who stopped by to watch another or listen to another episode of Off the Top. Yeah. Thanks. 